Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician and CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcasts. Covering the news this week for the week of February 24th. Let's get to it. So I think the big news for the week was the ONC unveiling its plan for combating clinician burnout. And I'll read you a few lines out of Healthcare IT News, Mike Milliard, February 21st. But I, I read the whole, it's a big document. I think it was, I don't know, it was at least 30 pages, maybe 70, I forget. Port says that its major goals are to reduce the time and effort that's required to record information in EHRs for healthcare providers when they're seeing patients. They also want to reduce the amount of effort it takes for us to report information to regulatory agencies for quality payment programs, and also just to include the, func the functionality and intuitiveness of the EHR. Uh, this uh, is a statement from National Coordinator Dr. Don Rucker. Patients will benefit from these efforts because their physicians will spend more time focused on them instead of their keyboards. Here is a, another quote. Although clinicians and other healthcare providers point to the implementation, use, and regulation of health IT and the EHR as a key support tool for care delivery, it remains a source of ongoing frustration. And that was from uh, an HHS official. And that's, yeah, it's a 73-page report, they say. So, should you expect anything magical coming from this tomorrow? Well, probably not. This is a very lofty goal, kind of, it was high-level, soft, fuzzy, no concrete recommendations that came out of this. On January 1, 2021, the documentation requirements for Medicare are supposed to change where we shouldn't have to put so much note bloat in to get paid. But I wonder if we can really change our templates on January 1. Because the other insurance companies out there have not said that they have changed yet. So I can picture that if you change your template, they're going to come back and deny your office visit or hospital charge saying it doesn't meet medical necessity, you didn't document anything that we need, and therefore give us uh, the money back. So we're getting there. This is a step in the right direction. The government is recognizing some of the things that they have done to create a harder environment for us to practice. They recognize some of the things the EHR vendors are doing, and there's a light at the end of the tunnel, maybe. I wish there was more concrete action coming out of this. Next. How training investments can boost EHR satisfaction, Nathan Eddy, February 17th. As part of the merger of five independent orthopedic practices to form Virginia's largest provider of orthopedic and therapy care, OrthoVirginia, a large investment was made implementing a new electronic health care system. A survey gauging physician satisfaction with the system, however, showed an overall poor experience which led to the CIO and CMIO to work together to implement and show measurable improvements across a range of areas, including more efficient use of the technology. Among the most important decision made was to use provider satisfaction measurement tools to better understand the most impactful EHR-related elements that drive provider satisfaction. 
a structured onboarding process, including an explanation of the organization's culture, also helps set expectations for what will be required of the provider to achieve EHR mastery. Got a quote here from, oh, this is the CIO, I believe. Providers must understand that they bear responsibility to master and improve their imperfect EHR for the benefit of their patients. Some methodologies that can be used to successfully implement a continuous education program for physicians, including offering at the elbow provider education and provider problem resolution based on a personal relationship between the provider and the support specialist. So my take on this, this is in news. We, we know what it takes to improve EHR satisfaction. What I do like is that they were measuring it and not everyone's doing that. And so if you're a CMIO out there and if you haven't, then I think you should measure your satisfaction levels with the EHR. And there's a variety of tools out there to do it. I've used class and found it to be a really valuable experience because you can benchmark it, but there are others out there. And the bottom line is it's just important to do it, to understand what your providers think so that you can start to put the investment and dollars towards making it better. Without the data, I don't believe hospital administrators by and large are excited to put money into training. But with data, they that will speak to them and you can get forward progress and helping administrators recognize the value of a continuing education program, of at the elbow support, of a proper onboarding program. They're so anxious to get these providers in the seat because they usually have a six month backlog of patients they're trying to deal with and the patients are getting angry and they also want to start bringing in the revenue that these providers make. So uh, a one day orientation program, that's just great from their standpoint, but maybe not so much for the long term benefit of that provider. So just think about that. Think about measuring if you're not already. And while we're on the topic of EHRs, this one, this article came out of Becker's Hospital Review, why this physician says he quit his 45 year career in medicine, the stress of adapting to the EHR, Jackie Drees, uh, February 21st. This was in an op-ed in the News Times, Dr. Volpinesta discussed his experience transitioning to an EHR system after spending 45 years as a general practitioner recording patient records on paper with pen. Dr. Volpinesta, who's based in Bethel, Connecticut, said he started using the EHR for the first time several months ago after joining a medical practice that uses it. A few months after the transition, he quit practicing medicine. A quote from him, after working four months with an electronic system, the mental stress took its toll, he wrote. Although I had limited my practice to seeing patients only two afternoons a week, I took my computer home at night and spent about one hour completing tasks such as reviewing blood work and refills for medications. So my commentary, Yes, providers are going to retire because they don't like change. Providers are going to stop practice because perhaps they don't like the EHR, but there may be other things contributing to that decision. I suspect there was a lot that went into this. But I do find it interesting that he highlights that the EHR was the villain here. And I wonder if, if that's entirely true. It may very well be that medicine is requiring more and more from the providers. 
and it's just the change and it's the that quality is being measured now and on the paper version it can't be so maybe the sh there's some stress associated with that or that people can scrutinize billing and uh, the notes in a different way than could be done before so I, brought, I think there may be a variety of issues that contribute to any provider deciding to leave medical practice it's sad when it happens but also i think we should all expect that it's going to happen anyway that's my two cents next this one annals of internal medicine February 18, 2020, declining use of primary care among commercially insured adults in the United States, 2008 to 2016. Primary care is known to improve outcomes and lower healthcare costs, prompting recent US policy efforts to expand its role. Nonetheless, there is early evidence of a decline in per capita primary care visit rates and little is understood about what is contributing to the decline. So this study, the objective to describe primary care provider visit trends among adults enrolled with a large national commercial insurer and assess factors underlying a potential decline in PCP visits. They don't name who the insurer is, but when I tell you here that it is 142 million primary care visits among 94 million member years were examined, well, it's gonna be United Healthcare at one of the blues. I mean, this is a big, big plan, obviously. Listen to this, visits to PCPs declined by 24.2%. And the proportion of adults with no PCP visits in a given year rose from 38.1 to 46.4%. Visits, uh, rates of visits addressing low acuity conditions decreased by 47%. The decline was largest among young adults, those without chronic conditions, and those living in the lowest income areas. Conclusion, commercially insured adults have been visiting PCPs less often and nearly one half had no PCP visits in a given year. Our results suggest that this decline may be explained by decreased real or perceived visit needs, financial deterrence, and use of alternative sources of care. The article continues, it's multiple pages here, but I did wanna fine tune in on just a few points one here, uh, visit characteristics. Visits addressing low acuity conditions decreased from 33.4 to 18.1 visits per 100 member years. Also, physician assistants and nurse practitioners provided a small but growing number of primary care visits from 1.6 visits per 100 member years in 2008 to 11 visits per 100 member years in 2016. So, one last line here, visits to alternative venues such as urgent care, retail clinics, emergency departments, and telemedicine increased by nine visits per 100 member years, offsetting about one quarter of the PCP visit decline. So I think it's interesting, and as a CMIO, you should know what the trend is about primary care visits, and that is dropping. I'm not seeing that there is a huge glutton of open access in primary care. They're still jammed for months of waiting to get new patients in just about everywhere in the country. But the easy stuff is probably shifting out and healthy people aren't coming in. And that's a change for a lot of providers because now you're dealing with the sicker, chronically ill, the people who probably need it to be in there more, but they're also more complicated which is gonna put more strain on the provider. There's more data to manage. 
There is more stuff that has to be input. So there are challenges that will impact CMIOs by a change in the way primary care is working in this country. So keep your finger on that. It's important stuff. Another quick clinical article, SGLT2 inhibitors help patients with diabetes regardless of the cardiovascular diagnosis. And this came out of the Journal of American Heart Association, and it is probably one of those landmark trials that you should know about. The study found that the whole class of drugs offers protective benefits across a broad group of patients. The lead author found uh, said that SGLT2 inhibitors protected against cardiovascular disease and death in diverse subsets of patients with type 2 diabetes, regardless of their cardiovascular disease history. This is a meta-analysis that captured more than 38,000 patients, 22,800 had cardiovascular disease, 3,800 had a major cardiac event, such as heart attacks or strokes. The author states, our results call for a reevaluation of current guideline recommendations for SGLT2 inhibitor therapy with a view to include those with and without established cardiovascular disease. The overview findings support consideration of SGLT2 inhibition in primary as well as in secondary prevention settings. I'll stop there. The, this is a big deal because these drugs cost between $350 to $550 a month. And using in primary prevention of cardiovascular disease and diabetics, that would be extremely expensive, but potentially wonderful in saving cardiovascular events. So someone's got to do the cost-benefit analysis, and I'm sure they will. But this is something where we will have it, this will have impact on our clinical decision support tool. Whether you're willing to jump ahead of the guidelines and put this in your clinical decision support tools now or wait uh, until later, I personally am going to wait, but I think it's coming and you should at least be aware of the trial. Next. Let's jump. I want to go to this article out of... Uh, out of Becker's from Andrea Park, Friday, February 21st. Harvard-founded Nebula Genomics launches a 299 whole genome sequencing. This is the most affordable personal genome sequencing on the market, is what Nebula Genomics is claiming. This is February 18th, and it's this test is available in 188 countries. The startup's whole gene sequencing provides customers, consumers with a significantly more comprehensive report than the genetic testing services of competitors such as 23andMe and Ancestry. While those in other consumer DNA testing companies analyze approximately 600,000 genomic variants, Nebula Genomics whole genome sequencing analyzes more than 6 billion. With the $299 testing kit, consumers receive lifetime access to their results and analysis containing what the company claims is 10,000 times more data than with 23andMe and Ancestry DNA, plus weekly updates based on new genetic discoveries. It also should come with a bottle of Xanax to help those patients who are now going to be extremely anxious about some DNA thing that they probably don't understand and can't get in to see their primary care doctor to talk about. Anyway, I think it's interesting that these tests are becoming more available at lower cost. This is not surprising. 
What is going to be interesting is what are we as CMIOs going to do with this data? At some point in time, patients are going to say that they want their data from the company because it is their information. They'll be able to pull it down somehow and they're going to want their doctor to have it. And they're going to want to be able to upload it to their doctor's EMR and say, doctor, I want you to have this and tell me what's wrong with me and what I should do to prevent illness which is fantastic. That's where we should be getting to. I don't see this being mainstream in the next three years, but I don't even know that we could store it. These files are probably huge. And when you start doing this on scale, our local data servers are not going to be able to handle this. I'm not sure we should be in the data center industry anyway. Let someone else do this up in the cloud, but I'm not sure your CIO will agree with that wholeheartedly yet. So, Anyway, this may be one of those things that tips them over that uh, we, we have to make room for huge amounts of data that we won't be able to use in a productive fashion for quite some time, but patients will expect that. Next, NRC Health alerts hospital partners of ransomware attacks, sparking concerns over patient data security. Beckers, um, Mackenzie Garrity, February 21st. And I mentioned this because I tried to get into the portal of NRC to look at our patient experience scores and I couldn't get in and now I know why and I didn't know why. So if you were wondering why, it looks like uh, February 11th they got attacked. It is unclear if any patient information or medical records were affected. NRC Health did not confirm the scope of the attack but they did say there's no evidence that patient data was breached. Anyway, another attack on another health type of healthcare organization. Let's do two more. This one out of Healthcare IT News, Nathan Eddy, February 19th. Providers struggling to give patients useful digital tools. Just four in 10 providers say digital technology is being successfully integrated into the overall patient experience. This is from a UPMC survey and they're showing that mostly when it is there, it is basic functionality. These were among the findings of a survey of more than 100 health system professionals by UPMC's Center for Connected Medicine, which found only a third of respondents believe their organization is providing a top quality consumer experience with the digital tools they provide. The report findings also suggest traditional organizations may be left behind by others who have created a stronger digital presence, with fewer than one in three respondents believing their organization is providing a best-in-class digital experience for patients. Tools need to be used by patients integrated with the health system's existing technology infrastructure, such as electronic health records, and provide a robust and user-friendly experience, the report noted. The survey results indicated the cost to build, buy, and maintain digital tools, along with integration difficulties and operational challenges, were among the most common obstacles facing healthcare providers. This is not new. We've known that our tools are suboptimal. Most of us are using the portals that come from our vendor. It, you, it is what, what it is when you get it, and you can try. Some people are building their own apps around it. Fantastic if you have the dollars to do that. For the rest of the country, for the majority of the country, they're just using the portals that come with the vendors, and that is your, your digital strategy. The challenges, I think, are more operational. I still see a tremendous amount of provider pushback. They don't want to put their schedules online. Hopefully you've already tackled this personally. I'm going through some of this with my providers now, trying to get them to put more access available. The patients want to come in. The providers have the slots. 
that's a match. Let's match them up. So the providers still like to have that control. They feel that if their front desk people are handling the appointments, that somehow they can keep the evil patients away. I think that is a fallacy. If patients are going to come in if you have slots, and you should facilitate that and make it as easy as possible. Not everyone agrees with me on that. I know that's a little controversial, but from CMIOs, I don't think it is. We know we've got to get the patients in and reach them in ways that they want to be reached because healthcare is better when they're engaged through whether that's the portal or other digital tools. Last article. Blue Cross expands risk-based contracting program to 14 health organizations. This one comes out of cranesdetroit.com by Jay Green, and it's February 23rd. And so seven more health organizations are joining a program that aims to share savings if targeted expense quality goals are met. Um, they are, this is a both upside and downside risk program. I think the first year or two is only upside. So if you get approached by a health insurer, of course they want to share risk. What a wonderful thing for them. They take risk all the time. How nice it is to share it with the providers. The question is, is what is that shared savings going to look like? And is it enough to change the way you're doing business? For the most part, so far, I haven't seen it. And now I don't know the details of this plan. I have no knowledge of it. But in general, I'm going to say that most health plans that are offering this to you, you need to ask at least seven really good questions. Number one is who is managing the registry of patients and how is the assignment done? Because you need to know if a patient's on your panel or not. And if a patient won't engage, can we remove them from our panel? And what is the mechanism around that? Two, will you share cost and quality data with us so that we know which providers outside of our network are providing high quality and low cost care? Insurance plans are really, really difficult to get them to release this information. This is proprietary contracting information that they'll have with the other groups. Let's just hypothetically say there's an orthopedic surgeon that is in town, but not involved in this shared savings program, perhaps. And you want to know what their return to OR rate is, what their infection rate is, how often they're using a skilled nursing facility after a total knee replacement. You need to know those things if you're going to take risk. They need to be able to share that with you, and I bet you they won't. Number three, how do we get access to data that shows us how we're doing in near real time? Don't tell me six months later via claims data how I'm doing on a quality measure. I need to know so that I can close that gap now to be able to move the needle. So will they give you near real time data? Number four, will they provide you with predictive algorithms to help you focus on the right patients? Most of the time, no. And if they do, how are you going to get that integrated into your EHR, into a place where you and your care managers can use it? Number five, will the insurance company ease the documentation burden and improve the prior auth process if you're going to take risk? Make it easier for you to practice. By all means, if they're, if they're going to share risk, well, then you want to share some of the burden, get some of the burden off of you. Number six, will they provide payment for telehealth visits? 
so that we can get reimbursed for providing care outside of our four walls. If they want to do innovative payment models, well, telehealth is part of innovation. They need to pay for that. Number seven, will you keep the co-pays down so my patients can afford their medications? Because if you put the medications out of reach, I cannot prevent or treat serious illnesses. And then these patients end up in the hospital with recurrent problems. So those are my seven questions. I'm sure you have some of your own. But be careful taking these downside risk contracts. I think it is the payment model of the future. Doctors are going to get beat up in these things if they're not asking the difficult questions. And that is our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Dr. Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect, and I look forward to bringing you our next episode. Music.